I think it took me a long time to realize that, you know, that the, the big challenges we face in sustainability in New York, in the United States, are these huge cultural goals, education. Everybody wants to dump their money into tech. You know, the tech's going to be the answer. But the speed with which we can respond to climate change and the challenges of sustainability are more complex. And, and, and I just think this is such a perfect example, getting people out of their cars, out of standing on, on curbsides for 45 minutes waiting for a bus and, and providing them a, a means of traveling quickly, cheaply, safely to work on, with an e-bike. This week's guest is Mariana Koval. Mariana is the director of Invest NYC SDG at NYU Stern's Center for Sustainable Business. Invest NYC SDG is a multi-year initiative that aims to build a sustainable, inclusive and resilient economy in New York City by using the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDGs, as a framework to drive private sector engagement and financing in six primary areas. Those areas being sustainable mobility, built environment, climate resilience, renewable energy, food and health, waste and circular economy. Mariana's accomplished 25-year career has spanned nonprofits, government, and law. As an experienced political, organizational, and policy strategist, Mariana has built deep domain expertise in sustainability, open space development, and green infrastructure. She has a track record of bringing multiple stakeholders together to create complex urban projects, such as the phenomenal Brooklyn Bridge Park in New York City. If anyone's been there over the last 10, 15 years, you will have seen the huge transformation that's occurred. In that green space. So today I really want to talk to her about how she's delivering transportation equity and to disadvantaged communities in New York City through an innovative micro-mobility and e-bike strategy. And this follows on from my recent interview with Carl Popham, who runs the transportation electrification program in Austin, Texas. And given this is one of the areas of focus for the podcast, I'm really excited to welcome Mariana. So welcome, Mariana, to the Impossible Network. Thank you, Mark. I'm really delighted to join you today. Thank you very much for the time. And where do I find you today? I'm sitting in my office in my home in Boston, Massachusetts. In the world that we live in today, uh, location is no, no longer an issue. Let my heart remains in New York. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> I, I'm in Austin, Texas. <laughs> ah. Oh, I like Austin. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I like it as well. But I mean, I'm, I, having spent almost 12 years in New York, I see myself as a Scot, but a, a natural an actual New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, yeah. It sticks with you. So, so before we get started, Mariana, I always like to get a little bit of understanding about a guest's background and what made them who they are as human beings and, and, and who you see yourself as, as an individual. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of a, a background to your early journey from where you were born, your early interests, the impact of your parents, and how you started out in law, because I, I found that interesting, given what you're doing now. Well, I, I was born in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California. Um, never really lived there. Both my parents grew up in Los Angeles, and, uh, and, and, and we moved to Eugene, Oregon. Uh, my parents were married at age 21. Um, my father taught at... Um, well, he finished his PhD at the University of Oregon, and my mother finished college. She 
became a journalist. My father became a professor of sociology. We moved to uh, South Bend, Indiana, where my father taught at Notre Dame, and my mother worked for the South Bend Tribune. This was back in 1967, kind of a pivotal time of change in the United States, the beginning of the feminist movement, civil rights uh, was dominating uh, our consciousness, the Vietnam War. And so that was the environment within which I grew up. And then we moved to Chicago and I went to high school in Evanston, Illinois, a large suburb. And, and I was, I think, uh, I had two working parents, three younger sisters, and uh, was always a reader, uh, read early in life, read late at night. And I found myself fascinated by politics and the events of our time. And, and so, you know, I don't know, my um, political awakening was when I went to the Orrington Hotel to, uh, I think it was right after the mining of Haiphong Harbor in Vietnam, and uh, George McGovern was speaking. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. I thought he was so moving and important. And so at, uh, I guess I was age 13, I showed up at the McGovern for President headquarters and became the high school student coordinator for the McGovern campaign. And, and so I, I loved that. And, and election night, um, after I had worked 60, 70 hours a week coordinating all the high schools in the 10th district of Illinois, my, my father called me at, I don't know, maybe 830 to say, I think I should come pick you up, Mariana. I was <laughs> surrounded by everyone, but. McGovern uh, was the first Democrat to win, win the 10th District of Illinois since Woodrow Wilson. So I've always held that as some part of an achievement that I can claim. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh, you know, then I went and I was a page in the Senate in 1974 uh, during the Watergate hearings. Um, so it was a very different perspective. What, what does that mean, page in the Senate? Well, in, in the United States Senate and House, they had a, a program where High school students could go and live, and you would go to page school from like 5.15 in the morning uh, to 8.30, and then you would work all day in the House or the Senate, then carrying documents back and forth, uh, assisting senators with uh, breath mints, pulling uh, newest pieces from the ticker tapes. And so it was a, a really interesting experience for me to watch uh, the senators then in, in 1974 at a, a real critical point in history, uh, formative for me to watch politics. Did this, did this not give you the sort of political bug and, and encourage and make you sort of set you on a track down to becoming a either working in policy or in, uh, in government? It, it, it took me a long time to figure out exactly where I would fit best. Didn't want to work in Washington, D.C. What I saw was, I thought, things that did not inspire me. I didn't want to be on Capitol Hill. And, and, and yet I had been exposed to a lot of the interesting machinations of government. Uh, there was also a lot of hypocrisy and dishonesty. So Something, I, Something's never changed. Yeah, it's all about politics, I guess, but you know, 
it was also a, a time of uh, huge change. It was one of the first girl pages selected. They had never, uh, until I think a, a year before, they had never uh, allowed girls to become pages. Even when I was a page, they wouldn't let us go into the marble room to um, bring a senator to the floor. I was told that the senators like to relax in the marble room and take off their pants when they relaxed. <laughs> I was told I couldn't go in there okay. until one day when I had to get somebody and I went in there and lo and behold, I didn't see anybody with their pants off that caused quite a scan. So anyway, you know, I don't know. I, again, the, the, the time in my life, I, I, I went to Princeton in 1975. I was in the fourth year of women at Princeton. It was a time of huge change and uh, the co-education of some of those elite Ivy League institutions. And it, I think, shaped me in wanting to have my voice heard and uh, not be silenced in class or in precepts, which was a teaching uh, vehicle at Princeton that the university was very proud of. You know, I got into student politics. I was the chair of the academics committee when Elliot Spitzer was head of the undergraduate uh, student body, wow. battled with Elliot, got involved in the uh, divestiture movement, picketed for a year and a half with our good chance of Princeton divest, just like the rest. If you don't, I don't, I forget the rest of the chant now. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I, that was my kind of experience. And then I moved to New York. Being in that, in that really interesting sort of period of change and transformation in society and the interesting sort of upbringing you had, uh, my, my observation is from interviewing so many guests and how also my own life, I moved a lot that I've noticed that people that are, uh, were used to sort of, um, different schools and different towns growing up are much more embracing of change and willing to, be comfortable with ambiguity. And also, I think it conditions you to work in transformational roles or jobs as you, as you evolve. It's maybe a generalization, but it's something I've observed. I'm just thinking the way that you talk about that trajectory of your early life and also the, the political time of change and transformation. Do you think it had an impact on the journey you've gone on and how it helped maybe develop your moral compass and sense of wanting to strive for a better world or environment, wherever that might be. Yes, moving around made me comfortable with change and often look for change. My moral compass, I think, was really very much shaped by my parents having a really strong sense of what it is to have integrity and and the essence of kind of personal and political values. And my parents were divorced when I was uh, 16, and it was a kind of hard, traumatic divorce. My mother was a journalist and my father was a professor. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think early on I felt that I had some kind of mission, that I had a very... Um, a strong personality that often made me feel out of place as I was growing up. I had strong opinions and wanted to talk about them. And it took me years and years to find my place where I was effective rather than 
you know, being an odd person out. So I think it's thinking about your own political values and what skills you have. And, and, it, and in life, it's about kind of, you know, matching the work to who you are and what you care about. And when I supervise people, when I'm in a, in a employment role, I often like to think that it's all about the right match for somebody and that each of us are seeking that right match for ourselves in work and in romance. And, and it, and it can be hard to, to find and you bumble along through life. But I think I, it took me a long time and I had to become a lawyer to learn that I shouldn't have. <laughs> well, just as a matter of interest, what, what aspect of law was it? Well, I, I, you know, I became a litigator in a kind of white shoe firm. Uh, I worked for uh, a law firm that it's since uh, dissolved. Uh, it was Dewey Ballantyne, Governor Dewey's old law firm. And um, I don't know, I, I, I was, um, I remember as a young lawyer going to have dinner with my mother and just saying how painful it was. I felt like I was a big square peg being ground into a round hole. And, and I was trying to be, you know, a top notch litigator and, and really hated it. And so again, then I, I stepped out of practicing law and went to work for the Dukakis presidential campaign and ran different districts and did. So that's interesting that it took you time to find, let's say, find your feet in life and, and find your voice and your area of focus. Cause going from that, you ended up in nonprofits as well. I didn't find my place and voice until I was over 40. It's often the case. It's, it's funny. I, I interviewed a woman, wonderful woman who's working in education system reform, and she spent all her early life as a TV producer, just didn't ever feel she was doing the right thing. And then age 40 with a child and thought, I know exactly what I need to do. And it's, it's funny that we force our, our children and we give advice and say, yeah, you need to know what you're doing at an early age. Some people know what they want to do when they're Age five, like another guess I had, and some people just, I think I'm still stumbling my, my way through to right. a certain degree. But, um, yeah, it is interesting. So maybe just give us, um, cause I want to talk about before we get into the amazing work you're doing from Boston to New York, um, about New York. So, so let's start with New York. I remember watching when I first moved to New York back in, must have been about 2010, 11, a wonderful documentary series. It was on YouTube, a uh, multi-part charting the history of New York. I always say to people, if you've never seen it, it's really, really worth watching because each episode is about two hours long and it takes you all the way through from the 1600s, everything that happened. And anyone that loves New York should always watch that documentary. So I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, uh, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I, I, I love the Museum of the City of New York. The, the Museum of the City of New York has done spectacular exhibits about the whole history of New York and the different aspects of it. So uh, well, you'd certainly love this documentary then. So I'll put it in the show notes. But as the largest city in the US and with one of, I think it's safe to say one of the most diverse populations. And it's always, and the reason I mentioned the documentary is it's people often just see cities as a, almost like this, uh, not a static entity, but just it is what it is. But cities change, they evolve all the time. And it's a city that has continued to evolve and adapt to the ever-changing economic, social, technological, and, and environmental conditions. 
and it, and it's continued to do so. And, all, and one of the most obvious ones is just post Sandy. And I think everyone that was there can sort of uh, attest to the fact that how resilient the city was and still is. So I'd love you to just give your perspective on why you think New York is so resilient, especially given COVID. And I was, <laughs> I was stuck in Williamsburg for the whole time, didn't leave the city once. Um, and everyone's predicting the demise of New York City. And I didn't ever believe that was going to happen. So I would love your perspective on that. I, I, I think New York is a, um, just a, an incredible city. Uh, and I am, after having married and moved to Boston, but still commute to New York regularly, my awe for the city continues. It gets to be fresh, you know, each time I come in on the Amtrak. My heart still trills to the view and the sense of energy and excitement, creativity, innovation. I guess uh, I moved to New York basically my junior summer in college when I went to work for the deputy mayor for criminal justice, Herb Stubbers. I was an intern and I never left until I, I recently married someone and he was based in Boston, and so I commute and make that gesture to having a happy marriage. Um, it's more than a gesture, um, but but, <laughs> but I, I think New York is um, resilient because, and then these are they all sound cliched, but because of its diversity, be because of its heart. Uh, I remember I uh, on nine eleven, I just dropped my daughter off for third grade. It was election day. Someone came up the stairs and told me a plane had just hit one of the World Trade Center towers. I raced down. I lived in Brooklyn Heights. I raced down to the promenade and watched the second plane hit and stood there with friends and neighbors and uh, the, the just absolute shock of what we watched. I stood with a friend who worked with many colleagues uh, on the top of one of the towers and she saw the whole building burn and then collapse. And, you know, we gathered and I made food for the police, no, the firemen across the street. And all these people gathered at my house. We went to give blood. There was no one to give blood to or for. And then I watched as I was then president of the Brooklyn Bridge Park uh, Conservancy. And... And as we thought about how we kind of shape a future and feeling so shocked at what had happened. And I remember walking down some dirty street and I sneezed and everyone was so vulnerable. Everyone felt so tender with each other. And some tough looking meter maid turned to me and said, God bless you, honey. <laughs> I thought this is the city I love and. You know, we, I, I gathered people together and we, uh, planted 50,000, uh, daffodil bulbs on a pier, uh, in, in Brooklyn over about eight weekends. We went in and cut the chain on this lot that was supposed to be part of Brooklyn Bridge Park at some point, but it wasn't in the overall, uh, 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 property holdings at that stage. And we planted two towers of daffodils. And dug in the dirt after removing all the bottles of Thunderbird and um, other detritus. But we had thousands of people over those weekends come down 
to those peers and help plant those daffodil bulbs. And they came up. And um, I don't know, to me, that was, to me, it's sort of a symbol of what held my heart and that it holds my heart still, but it, New York makes me mad as hell at the same time. I've tried to explain to people. I mean, I think Austin's a wonderful city, no doubt. And there's so many people moved here and it's, it's evolving as well. But when I try and explain to people that you, there's something incomparable to New York, and I think as you described it, the diversity, I think in its diversity, there's a unity that brings people together in times of some form of strife, whether it be 9-11, Sandy, COVID. You know, I remember during COVID, I was doing a project actually with Vanessa Barboni-Halleck of Another Tomorrow called Back the Neighborhood when we were looking at, you know, how do you re-knit the fabric and going around interviewing people around the West Village. And just amazing the sort of the sense of what we're calling a common unity between those people, um, all wanting to do the right thing to, to rebuild. But there, there's, there's something in the spirit of the city. And I, in, I, think it's, I think it's grounded in its diversity. And the fact that the unity is people see themselves as New Yorkers, you know, whether you're, whether you're Kashmiri, Scottish, Argentinian, whatever, you, you come there and you say, this is, this is who I am. And, so and it took a long powerful. time. It is very powerful. Uh, and, it, and it took me a long time because I thought I am a New Yorker. It was like, I, I am, I'm opinionated. I'm loud. I can be too aggressive. <laughs> um, and, and yet I, I found my people. I found my people. And it was a wonderful feeling, you know, to be able to go in and quickly tell somebody that you want, you know, ham sandwich on toast or whatever the hell it was and gets that back to you and somebody shouts at you and you shout back at them in a genial way. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. So that's that question. Um, the role you're in now, and we're going to come back and talk about the Brooklyn Bridge Park because I think it's fascinating. In the role you're in now as director of Invest NYC around the SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals, at New York University, the Stern School, the Center for Sustainable Business, if I'm correct. You, you are one of the people at the forefront of driving change and transformation in the city through applying that SDG framework, uh, the 17 goals, but built into those six, the, the six core areas I mentioned at the beginning. Can you just give a simple breakdown of actually what that means and why it's important to both citizens and business. And I think you were one of the first cities to embrace the uh, the SDGs framework and to work in, let's say, in harmony with uh, with the goals. Well, I, I think New York City was the first city in the world to actually take its own sustainability plan and map it against the UN SDGs and and and, and agree to voluntarily report its own achievements against the UN SDGs. You know, the SDGs were promulgated in 2015 with the goal of really uh, catalyzing private sector business investment uh, uh, to, to address the 17 different goals by 2030. And, and, and so the head of the Center for Sustainable Business, who's been a long colleague and friend, Tansi Whalen, um, she, she thought that this was a great opportunity to really test what could be done on the ground to develop sustainability projects, match sustainability projects to the needed financing. Uh, and so she asked me if I w would be interested. I had worked with her on Brooklyn Bridge Park and, and I was, I didn't know exactly what it 
what what it would translate into. But uh, I guess, you know, we had six areas uh, that we were looking at, the built environment, waste, food and health, sustainable mobility, uh, renewable energy, and climate resilience. And so we just spent time thinking about and research and, and engagement of people across various sectors to, to find out what are the problems within New York City? What are the barriers to achieving them in these areas? Who are the stakeholders? What are the metrics by which you could measure success or failure? And in truth, I think we began, or I may have begun with the idea that, well, I need to find existing projects that, that I then can introduce and match to private finance, whether it's philanthropy, uh, impact investors, VC. I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't have a deep finance background. But, but what I did know was that if in fact we wanted to engage the private sector and, 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 and there were New York City sustainability goals, that's a political, those sets of goals are, are a politically created document or a document created by a political entity and that we had to get everybody together. And, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, what d- people within different city agencies had as their goals where they thought they could see a private sector role that would be useful and then talking to people in the private sector. So, you know, what I've learned in my long career through a lot of mistakes, uh, is, is the importance of, uh, learning how to collaborate and develop collaborations across different kind of silos. And so that was really important in this process. And then I think the other thing was just the serendipity of, of talking to lots and lots of different people about where there might be solutions to, to various problems. And then trying to bring other like-minded people together and shape a solution and find funding, financing, and, and, and move it forward through education and other engagement processes. It, it must be challenging with the myriad of departments and organizations and bodies within the city, both public and private, with their own vested interests to get consensus on such big, big challenging goals. Because there's going to have to be some compromise and some sacrifices made in certain instances. Well, I, yeah, I think compromise is always difficult. But if, if we're more concrete, you know, if we, if we talk about goals like reducing carbon emissions in New York City and the tools that one has both politically using the, the laws that can be enacted by government, uh, using education, creating, uh, coalitions of people with different strengths that find shared goals, you can be very powerful sometimes. You know, I, I think one of the pieces that I found in work is that I like being in the trenches. I like figuring out how to make the sausage, literally. So what does it mean? You know, I mean, if we're going to talk about sustainable mobility and how we develop the equitable commute project, well, you have to spend some time doing some of the basic research. You start talking to people, you you learn and then you build your team, you try it out. You realize that you have to figure out how to operationalize things. 
what does it mean? How do you get e-bikes to lower income New Yorkers? Where? What's the mechanism? How do they buy them? How do they finance them? Where do they find the locks? How do they get their, their helmet? And you keep increasing the number of people in your own coalition or collaboration, bringing the different talents of various people to drive something forward. It's interesting. I'd mentioned at the beginning that I um, interviewed Carl Popham from Austin Energy around their electrification strategy. And, and I think it's fair to say, I think you probably agree that although he, he loves, he even gave up his car to get an e-bike himself. It's Austin's focus is primarily on electrification of vehicles and, and they are one of the leading cities in terms of penetration of EVs. But it's a very different city because unlike New York, it doesn't have the sort of the public transport infrastructure. And obviously it's much more dispersed rather than, uh, than the, the limitation on land that, that New York has. But why were e-bikes so important for New York? Uh, and particularly the role that they're playing in improving the economic and employment opportunities of disadvantaged communities or, or, or citizens. And, and for a lot of people that maybe don't know New York, they just assume it has got this amazing MTA public transport system in it that allows people for easy access across the city. Yeah, let me back up a little bit and just um, if, we're, if we talk about our e-bike initiative, um, it's called the Equitable Commute Project. You know, my, my whole Invest NYC SDG initiative it was begun in April of 2019. So remember what happened in March of 2020. We were in the mm-hmm. midst of our research. We were setting up big convenings between the city and the private sector. And, and, and COVID, the pandemic swept the world. It was very difficult to talk to people who worked within New York City, you know, in the mayor's office, in administrative positions, because you could hear the sirens going day and night in the background. Many people took, uh, they were taking on work beyond what their administrative role was to help in food distribution and other necessary pieces of responding to the pandemic. And so it, it really changed uh, my view of what was going to be important to take on because the social justice piece of the UN SDGs became so much more apparent as we watched the number of food insecure people, for example, double almost overnight. When I was on the subway and see hardly anyone on the subway, but the, those who were, were largely people of color uh, commuting to frontline jobs where they couldn't work remotely. And so in July of 2020, I happened to be on a call with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development talking to people based in Geneva, and they wanted my opinion about uh, whether New York might join an initiative they had launched in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, engaging businesses in sustainable transportation efforts. And I listened really politely to everybody and said at the end of the conversation, you know, I don't think that New York is, I don't know that I would ever make New York my second pilot city. It's a really complicated place. But right now, if, if there isn't a project that really responds to the kind of economic redevelopment and the kind of social justice, uh, this is also as George Floyd had just been murdered. I don't see how it's going to get anybody's attention. And it just so happened later that afternoon, I talked to 
a woman who I had been introduced to, Melinda Hansen, who was an expert in micromobility. And we just started talking and realized that many, many lower-income people live in the farthest reaches of New York City. They live in transportation deserts. They take a very long time in kind of multi-piece commutes with bus and subway and walking. And that the rest of the world has been looking at micromobility, particularly e-bikes, and recognizing how critical uh, as a mode of transportation, a commuting transportation, they can be. And so what we also realized, though, is that the real challenge was for lower-income New Yorkers. Uh, at that time, fewer than 1% of New Yorkers used cycled to commute to work. Now it may be 2%, maybe it's 3%, even with the pandemic. I was just looking it up last week when some, oh, you know, I'm writing a big uh, roadmap about this project. And I've got this 86-page document that's almost going to the, the the graphic designer. But the editor said, wait, less than 1% commute by bike in New York? And I said, yeah. I looked it up and, and it looks like maybe 2%, but no more, even with the pandemic. And so how do we change that when people's commutes are less than five miles um, in, in New York and people live in transportation deserts? And when you realize that cycling in the United States is really viewed still, unlike Western Europe or Asia, it's, it's viewed as a, as, as recreation. If you go to the biggest bicycle company in the world, Trek, look at their website. All you see is white men in spandex. And now that they even have a city e-bike, they show the city e-bike they're selling in a recreational mode, somebody, you know, with flowers in her basket or something. And in part, I think it took me a long time to realize that, you know, that the the big challenges we face in sustainability in New York, in the United States, are these huge cultural goals, education. Everybody wants to dump their money into tech. You know, the tech's going to be the answer. But the speed with which we can respond to climate change and the challenges of sustainability are more complex. And, and, and I just think this is such a perfect example, getting people out of their cars, out of standing on, on curbsides for 45 minutes waiting for a bus and, and providing them a, a means of traveling quickly, cheaply, safely to work on, with an e-bike. So obviously there's a lot has to happen and what you're doing to implement this change aside from the education, there are considerations around bike lanes, the infrastructure, the safety, the security that you sort of touched on. But maybe you could um, explain, because I've, I've looked at your a couple of your documents, you have three core pillars that underpin the equitable commute project. So before we get into the specifics, could you just detail what those are? Yeah, we've been able to kind of sort them out into access, green jobs, and the accelerator com- component. So Access is delivering the means by which people can actually afford to buy an e-bike, and that is supported by incentives uh, that can be as a rebate or subsidy. It was included in the Build Back Better bill. There was um, over $4 billion uh, for e-bike subsidies, but it was stripped out uh, in the um, Inflation Reduction Act. But it could yeah. be done by New York State, and we have pending legislation, which we've been supporting uh, Assemblymember Robert Carroll in thinking through how to get this incentive legislation passed in, in New York State. The other piece of it is is creating accessible financing. And so one of our partners is Spring Bank, which is a B Corp 
CDFI, which stands for Community Development Finance Institution. They're based in the South Bronx, extremely innovative. And we've been working with Spring Bank over the last two years, and they've developed a uh, lending program for people who seek to buy e-bikes. And, and they make that loan product available to people without any credit history. So it's, it's wow. wonderful. It's very innovative, important financing for lower income New Yorkers to have access to sustainable mobility. So that's the access piece. And on the green jobs piece, you know, this is an enormous industry that's growing by leaps and bounds. We've worked with the HOPE program that does workforce training. They're one of our coalition partners. And the HOPE program has designed uh, workforce training for e-bike mechanics, uh, battery maintenance, and the other kinds of uh, sales and maintenance functions that are necessary for this growing industry in New York City. And then the last piece is, we, we characterize it as the accelerator piece. It's the advocacy and education of New Yorkers about the access, but the benefits of e-bikes in simplifying and reducing the cost of commuting. We, we do have one of the best public transportation systems in the world. What we don't realize is when you look at a subway map, for example, when you look at the Bronx and see where the greatest population, lower income population lives, and the largest employer is at Montefiore Hospital, to get from the southeast corner of the Bronx up to Montefiore is, a, is an extremely long, multi-pronged commute that can be actually done on an e-bike in 10, 15 minutes. But otherwise, and, bus, bus yeah. centric. Bus, yeah. subway. Our lines are, our subway lines are north south. And so in going east west, that's can be the, the big huge challenge. So, and, and I think you, you prompted me earlier. What, what we learned in this process is that shockingly, the single biggest factor in, in anyone's, uh, ability to accelerate their economic advance economically is their the length of their commute. Uh, and there's been a long-term study that, that that was done at Harvard. And it's it was very surprising to NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, New York City Department of Transportation. It, if we can reduce people's commute time, it can have a really dramatic impact in their own economic advancement. It's one of the simple, almost like behavioral economic facts that you don't really sort of consider. Um, and I saw one of your, your charts uh, depicted distance, um, commute time, annual cost and carbon emissions between subway, bus, car and e-bike. An e-bike comes out on the top. It's the, it's the fastest commute. It's the lowest average cost and it's the lowest emissions. So when you start to realize that it's just common sense that any city, any community would be, should be embracing this technology and developing the sort of the education programs to get people to embrace these new behaviors. Uh, as you say, the impact that it could have on the communities and the transformative effect on people's lives is, is vast. In terms of getting that story out and building that education program, because the other thing Carl said to me that surprised me, he said a lot of what they've found here, maybe it's a Texan thing, he said when people start to see 
the infrastructure change in their communities, in those in the lower income communities. They see it as gentrification. And they often resist it. He said they'll either be vandalized or shot at. So I'm just wondering if you've got a similar, uh, you're seeing similar things in New York. Uh, you know, I think New York is way behind in creating, you know, safe cycling infrastructure. I don't see there being opposition to that. One of the biggest impediments to uptake uh, often is the fear of the, the basic safety that there, there aren't protected infrastructure lanes and it's happening slowly. But in a way, you know, what we have to do is if you come, they will build it and you need to create that critical mass. And I think it will happen. One interesting thing that I hadn't thought about until I recently read it in the last, I don't know, eight or nine months. Um, and it was in the context, I think, of the Build Back Matter bill and the loss of the, um, any incentive programs at a federal level for e-bikes. And that's just the fact that there is no e-bike industry here in the United States. What, what continues to drive EV and, and, and the automobile industry is it employs, I think, more than a million people. There are no e-bike jobs in, in the manufacturing of e-bikes. They're all imported. That's really surprising. So that's why I think we should have Americans build something in West Virginia. What they need to do, <laughs> build a factory in they, Arizona they should, yeah. and West Virginia. So when I went to this Electrify Expo event in Austin in November and the one the year before as well, and there was tons of e-bikes, lots of e-bike manufacturers there. And it didn't even occur to me that none of them would be local or, or American manufacturers, given that the, you've got, obviously, with Detroit, with Ford and GM, and the car manufacturing, that there, there's, that would seem to be a huge opportunity for startups. Well, and I think it's one reason why the, the incentive uh, dropped out of the, the bill. It's because there's no industry that it's supporting and there's no American industry that the incentive supports. So you've talked about the infrastructure and that that maybe is a little bit lagging and in, in, in these secure bike lanes. Obviously, there's a safety element to that, but there's also the sort of safety and security for the bikes. So how do you help address those concerns for people that, you know, if they're, they're going to work, they have safe places to lock them up. Is that something that you can affect or is it something you look to the private part, private public partnerships to, to address? I, you know, I think it's a concern. There's bike theft, bike theft really increased during the pandemic. That's why I think one important partner in this piece is employers and uh, employers, uh, 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 encouraging their employees to use e-bikes, becoming, uh, creating their own kinds of incentives and also providing safe storage at, at least the work side of a commute. And I think, you know, having better locks will help. People are developing a lot of different systems right now because e-bikes are more expensive. I think that the city can, can gear up if the city, uh, anticipates and sees increasing demand for parking infrastructure, safe parking infrastructure. We talk about the journey you've been on. You're obviously the, the journey is far from over because if you think about the pandemic and how wonderful New York City was as a place that I cycled around New York all the time during the pandemic and it was delightful to be cycling up and down what were essentially these canyons with no other, with hardly any traffic there. New York will never become like a well, maybe it will. Maybe it will be New Amsterdam. But it, to be able to sort of reduce the amount of traffic coming into the city or to 
create bike-only streets and avenues. Is, is that something you think, even outside of once you go beyond the Bronx, is that something that you think is achievable within the, the realms of, of, let's say, the next 10, 15 years that we might see that radical transformation? I think so. I think that's, I think that's going to happen. I, I go back and I, I think about the radical changes that were made during the, for example, the Bloomberg administration, the Department of Transportation Commissioner, Jeanette Sadek Khan, who was very smart and thoughtful and put her shoulder behind city bike and and made that happen, changed the streetscape, all sorts of traffic calming and and parklets and uh, other infrastructure to give the streets back to people. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 10 years. But if you look to other countries, I mean, there are over 300 million e-bikes in China alone today. And, and the U.S. is just so far behind. And, and I think it's got to be a, a process of getting people on to an e-bike and realizing how much fun it is, how fast, how you can really cover a lot of terrain quickly and easily, and you become an advocate and change, change other people's ideas and attitudes and create that critical mass. You create that critical mass in the politics and politicians respond, and you see capital dollars flow. How important is education? And I'm starting to look at it as a not just a, a one- to two-year plan, but a 10- to 15-year plan in, in educating children in the school system. Because as they become adults, there could be, they could, you know, make having to make transportation choices, you know, being aware of the the significant impact one person's choice can make in terms of lowering emissions and building for a more, a cleaner, safer city could be sort of a part of a, a long-term strategy. Is there a, is, is there some part of the project where you're working with the education departments to, to either educate or to inspire the kids to consider e-bikes as they grow up? You know, not yet. But I was really inspired by an article I saw in the last two months about a town in Ohio that was respond trying to, to develop strategies to reduce food waste. And so the school system began to teach kids about food waste and how to reduce it. And the children became real uh, advocates and monitors of their own parents' and families' behavior and educated their family. And as I recall, in like a year and a half, two years, they reduced food waste by 20, 25%. And so, so I love the idea of the, uh, and from my own childhood, I can think about how children, when educated, can become real agents of change in their own families. And so, yeah, I think that would play a really important part. And we have to think about about how to translate that in an educational setting. Yeah, I think it's clearly there's opportunities there, particularly good, as you say, China. It, there are a lot of people who have bikes there, but it has been traditionally a, a bike culture that then became a car culture. The US is very different. So starting young and trying to change the mindsets of children so that they don't immediately see the transition to adulthood and the rites of passage as being adulthood equals get my first car 
Yeah. And I think that's an important, an important message to start to seed with, with children that it's not necessarily aspirational. Yeah. To have a car, particularly when you're in a city. And obviously in certain, certain times of life, it changes. And, you know, as we should get a family, then maybe it, there has to be a, a multimodal sort of transportation strategy, but core. If you start to think about it, the components of what is a, a, an individual or a family's transportation, individual transportation strategy, it, it has to have different parts of it. So, yeah, within X number of miles, it's the bike. And then beyond that, maybe there is a car, but it's reducing the number of average mileage taken. And then where do uh, EVs come in at some point? So I think that is something that there's a role, I believe, for the private sector as well and brands to start to educate and take responsibility for educating sort of children and and having relationships with the school system as well because if you start to think about the SDGs people maybe see these goals as these uh, audacious unachievable goals and what difference can i make to the impact on them but when you start to break it down into the sectors that you've talked about like food and waste and about the uh, transportation Give them specific local manifestations that people can understand that the impact they can make, the, the, the changes they make and that they adopt in their lives can have an impact when they're adopted at scale. And I think that's part of the challenge that the, I find in a lot of conversations I have is that with people, they don't, they don't relate to the SDGs. They're, they're so distant. You've got to personalize them. You've got to make them hyper local and meaningful. And I think the sort of things you're doing with, your e-bike strategy and what's happening with food and some of these other, these six categories. When you start to put it into a, a, a personal context, I think that's when people are prepared to listen and embrace change. But that's me off my soapbox. Well, I, I agree that we have to uh, bring these audacious goals into concrete uh, contexts that, that, that we, one of the problems with the SDGs as they were promulgated in 2015, was that, that you didn't have finance and the private sector at the table. Same thing was essentially true in New York with our own sustainability plan during the early Bloomberg administration. You had 35, 38 people on the advisory board, and only five of them were from the private sector and nobody from finance. And so I think just stepping back, one of the things I've thought, and it's a really simple step that needs to be taken is that as you create plans as, and, and, and develop goals, you have to be extremely concrete and you need to have all the different parties at the table agreeing to those goals and then taking uh, responsibility for achieving specific actions that you identify and identify the metrics against which their achievements can be measured. No one's done that at a UN level, at a New York City level, in looking at sustainability goals. It, it bring the community organizations, bring national nonprofits, bring the business sector to the table. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you, what can you do? What do you think about this goal or that goal? And then, and then let's come back in a year. What did you accomplish? It's, I say sausage making. It's, it's how do you actually do it? All these flowery goals. But it, it that's exactly what you're saying there is a great example of it not being hierarchical top-down imposed by this big global organization. And everyone going, yeah, okay, it's not us, it's the Chinese that are causing it, the Indians, the emerging economies, we're doing what we can, whatever. And they're going, no, it's the Americans, it's the West, they're all responsible for 
the emissions from the past and why should we take responsibility? But when you start to contextualize it around your community and what you're seeing and experiencing in it with the people who are all, let's say, with the diverse of New York, everyone feels New Yorkers, so you take a sense of ownership. And I think it's a great way of turning it from flipping it from being hierarchical top down to ground up solution problem solving. And it, it makes me think, I, I read that you, you, you're described as a collaborative, tenacious builder of partnerships and organizations. And you know what you're describing there does, it sort of lends itself to saying, well, someone needs to be uh, responsible for coalescing and getting people around the table to agree the changes they can make, whether it be a, you know, a private organization, an NGO, or whether it be a local government, a city government body. These coalitions the reason, well, the reason I think they're going to be important is I, I was speaking to um, Jeremy Tamamini, who runs Dual Citizen and um, Global Green Economy Index recently, and he talked about this climate paradox. He's done this, sur- this survey trying to understand why is it that while we're making these great strides in different areas, and you know, if you just look at what you're doing in the city around the six categories, policies, people, products, are all seem to be moving in the right direction. That there is scale beginning to happen. Maybe not at the speed that we want to see, but at the same time, we're still seeing emissions. We're still experiencing social inequity and environmental health in many situ- in, in many instances are worsening. So getting bringing these coalitions together to address this paradox is important. Who, who does it fall upon in cities like New York? Who takes resp- responsibility? Is it the mayor's office? Is it your organization? Does it fall on some coalition of uh, private organizations, banks? Because you can sort of see everyone sitting there going, well, it's not my, it's not my role to do that. Someone has to step up and take a leadership position in it. I'm just intrigued to sort of get your perspective on, on how that's going to happen. Well, you know, and maybe this is too traditional, but I guess I, I think that to advance critical sustainability goals when New York City and New York State government controls most all of the infrastructure. They own it or control it. It's, it's, it's very hard to lead a movement to, to advance change without having the real leadership of city and state government. Seen so as to be Albany. Well, maybe, maybe Kathy Hoke, you know, we're seeing some interesting initiatives. I think Eric. Adams, our mayor, has been faced with some large challenges early on in terms of crime and people's fears of crime in, in New York City that has left less oxygen for larger projects like leadership in sustainability and projects that respond to climate change. I think, I think you need political leadership. You need a voice. You need a strong voice. It's easiest if you have that person that has a large administration and the tools of government at his or her or they, their fingertips. And then that leader needs to understand the power of the coalition behind such a, a set of goals. I think that is what I've learned through my life. I mentioned earlier on about the Brooklyn Bridge Park initiative. What were your lessons from that? I mean, it's amazing. Incredible transformation. There can't be many city escapes, landscapes that have transformed to the radical degree that that has from what it was to what it is now. Uh, that was a multi-year journey. 
when you set out to work on it, was the, was the vision for what it is now there at the beginning or did it evolve through uh, the coalitions that you built? Well, I'm, I'm just one of many people who worked on Brooklyn Bridge Park over many years, over almost two decades. And I think it had to come from a combination of having a powerful city-based coalition. It couldn't just be Brownstone, Brooklyn. Uh, and the ability to communicate the kind of political power of that coalition to elected officials. Then it was the mayor and governor and, and, and knowing when in the political cycle you make that leadership appeal. I think Brooklyn Bridge Park was, uh, uh, early on it began because the city wanted to build high rise buildings on the piers in front of Brooklyn Heights, an affluent neighborhood that opposed that. But there was one man in a basement meeting 25 years ago who said, no, we can do better. Let's build a park. Let's build a waterfront park. And really, that's how it started. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and people began to think about that. And then people began to work together with different electeds and they developed 13 guiding principles. Moses came down from the Mount. It took, you know, a long, long time of a lot of people in Brooklyn fighting like hell. And they had those guiding principles and those guiding principles still shape the final uh, plan for Brooklyn Bridge Park. I, I think what, what I did in, and with the Brooklyn Bridge Park coalition that then became the conservancy was I, I started doing programming and, and used that mantra. If you come, they will build it. I wanted to create a citywide constituency and did it by uh, launching the first film series in 1999 or 2000. The first movie we showed was I had to do it on the waterfront, to do it on the waterfront. But, you know, scratching together money, bringing people down to, you know, a dog-eared uh, park with, you know, tumbleweeds and putting our screen in front of the Brooklyn Bridge. That was the backdrop. And we started bringing thousands and thousands of people. We got a stage. We put got bands. We, and, and so I used this kind of alliterative play. I thought you need to have passion, parties, pictures, a love of people. I don't know. I had other Ps. But it was heading out, going living room to living room, church back room to church back room, community board meetings, and being indefatigable. But the other piece was bringing people to the park to let them see how wonderful it could be, creating, you know, all the program we created before there was ever a park. And then I could go to the New York City Council and I could turn to the council members who saw me as representing Brownstone, Brooklyn, an elite uh, community that wanted a park in its front yard. And I could say to the city council members, we had 200,000 people here last summer, and this is the zip code breakdown of who came and what they did. And these people came from your district, and these people came from your district. I learned politics in part that way. And so it was really hard, but we did the floating pool in 2007, where we created beaches in a parking lot and had, I think, almost 100,000 people come to this retrofitted garbage barge that was a swimming pool that overlooked the Statue of Liberty and Lower Manhattan. And we, I, I just can never forget the day when we opened it. It was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. 
And all these people were online, July, whatever it was in 2007. And when I went and opened up the, the rope to let them run up onto the barge, this little boy with his noodles said, he ran up to the top of the stairs and looked out at this gorgeous pool. And he said, Oh my God. Oh my God. This is for us and it's free. And he jumped in. <laughs> Lovely. So it was, it was movies, pools, dancing. God, all, you know, all the different, all the different things that makes, and this is the spirit of New Yorkers that we, we had Easter egg hunts that brought 10,000 kids. We couldn't, we couldn't imagine that there would be so many people who wanted to come to an Easter egg hunt and we were overwhelmed. So it's creating fun. So during that time there must have been a period of going back to being comfortable with change and embracing change and seeking out and being comfortable with ambiguity. That must have been a period when you must have had to be quite resilient at a time when there's no certainty that it was going to happen. There was no guarantee that you get these these coalitions and these uh, agreements in place with the politicians to end up building this park. How did you, how did you manage your, the sort of the uncertainties during that period and maintain your own resilience? Well, in 2003, my husband uh, loved to run across the Brooklyn Bridge and then back over the Manhattan Bridge and come up through Dumbo. And one day in May, he did that and he stopped uh, to give a television interview with his friend about Brooklyn Bridge Park. And I have the television tape then as he ran up the hill and he collapsed and died about an hour later. And my daughter was 10 and I was 45. And so, you know, there's a before and after event in everybody's life. And that event made me uh, extremely committed to making sure that I was able to move Brooklyn Bridge Park forward and become a reality, and I wasn't going to let go. Yeah, wow. So I have a tape of my uh, late husband uh, yeah. saying, talking all about Brooklyn Bridge Park to the interviewer. Wow, that's incredible. Well, you're you're at a, probably a similar sort of point in terms of the journey to transformation with the equitable commute project that you're you're making great i don't know <laughs> cliche inroads and getting the adoption of these e-bikes and putting in place the coalitions the financing the safety the security measures to to drive that transformation for people's lives economically it is clearly going to be transformative where do you hope to be i mean we talk about the global goals we talk everyone talked about 2030 where where would where would you like to be? For, where would you like New York City to be by 2030? If we were sitting here again and looking back and going, wow, look what you achieved. Well, you know, I have projects across a number of different areas. So I, I certainly would like to see, you know, micromobility. I hate the word, but, you know, electric mobility, two-wheel electric we, we, mobility. We need to work on the branding. Yeah, yeah. I like to see people cycling. And and I, I you know, I, I think... uh we, we, we will see that by 2030. We'll see that by, yeah, we'll see that by 2030. And I, I hope New York does not become a city of only the wealthy, that the diversity of the city continues and it's economic and racial and ethnic, that that's the heart of New York that makes it so exciting. And so I hope that, that the desire to bring positive change 
on the part of New Yorkers continues. I mean, I just was on a call this morning with one of my colleagues in the Bronx who worked on creating Concrete Park, a 13-acre park in the South Bronx, and he carried his cell phone, and he's 49 years old, and uh, Omar Freya, and he carried the cell phone uh, as he was walking through the park to a press conference to, you know, announce a project we're working on with Canna Bronx to help bring uh, a uh, cannabis incubator to Rikers Island. But there he was, and he told me one of the best things of his life was working on that 13-acre park and being successful in seeing it built. And so I guess I'm kind of looping back around. What do I hope for? That there still is an environment where people think, yes, I can make change in New York, and I can see it. I can physically see it. So whether it's better bike infrastructure, more public spaces, parks in communities that haven't had parks, uh, finding finding ways to increase urban agriculture, food production within the city of New York. Massive opportunity. Right. So we have a lot of ideas. Yeah, urban farms. I mean, I, I've gone on endlessly to people about the most extraordinary experience, community experience I think I've ever had, wherever I've lived, was North Brooklyn Farm, which was the community farm built on the edge of underneath the Williamsburg Bridge during the development of uh, Domino Park. Right. And it was a community, a community farm. And I, you know, I went up and interviewed one of the founders up in his, he's got a farm now up in the Catskills, Ryan Watson, who was a lawyer who just had this vision of wanting to get his hands dirty and, and, and create a farm in New York. And they managed to bring it to life and, and deliver it. And this was a place where suddenly I'd spent three years in Williamsburg. I didn't really know anyone in my local community. But suddenly, within a space of a year, by going down to this farm, okay, benefit of having a dog, and just hanging out there, buying your local vegetables there, because they grew locally in the little farm yard. They had drinks, meetups, just hang out there, sit on the benches, have a coffee, grab a drink, and get talking to people. And I met the most extraordinary people, of just neighbours. You passing by on the street, you'd never speak to them. And yet this was a magnet that transformed that neighborhood. And I don't know, you know, now I'm not there, but everyone was really destroyed when they actually shut it and went, well, what are we going to do now? That was when the Walentis is built Domino. Yeah, Domino. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it just, and that was, it was there for six years in that little piece of land. And it, it really did create, it created new, relationships. I, I bet you some people have got married because of it. There's probably stories out there about that. They certainly created friendships and it created a, a greater sense of local community spirit than anything that could have come about through just a normal piece of green space. And it was, and it was good. It was grass. It was earth. It was vegetables. People were eating healthier because it was cheaper than going to Whole Foods or one of the other sort of uh, markets. And we need more things like that. Now, whether it's on rooftops or whether it be in small plots, I think that's another example of building sustainable cities. It needs to be those people with the imagination and the willpower and the desire to to, to start these conversations. And particularly in places like the, the Bronx, where you probably where you probably could do that. Well, you know, we have a um, project that we've proposed to build a 32-acre commercial farm on Rikers Island, an indoor farm using controlled environment agriculture technology, but employing formerly incarcerated New Yorkers and creating a pathway to worker ownership, it can be a big 
piece in addressing food insecurity and having year-round access to low-cost berries and, and, and leafy greens through the winter, but it also could create a, an urban agricultural hub in the city of New York. And we think it should be combined with, you know, a accelerator for cannabis. You look at this, the, the school system and the biggest buyer of food, and I think in, in New York is for to feed the kids at school. Mm-hmm. If you start to build that inner city food production of healthy foods, whether it be vegetables, pulses, and then you're getting, you're cutting the supply chain down for where the food's coming. It's fresher, it's local, it's probably healthier for the kids. And once you're addressing one issue there, you're creating economic opportunity and jobs for people. I'm conscious of your time, and I, I just I want to uh, finish off with a couple of questions. When I started this podcast, it was just an experiment in serendipity for me to interview people and see where it would take me. But now I'm being more intentional with who I interview, and I'm interviewing what I'm calling the difference makers, the domain experts and storytellers, and then intentionally encouraging random collisions. When I say random collisions, between very un- people that would never, would not normally meet or talk. So this, what I'm calling the random collisions part of the podcast is I'm inviting and asking our guests, are you open for me to connect you with other guests that you might not think there'd be a connection, but would could lead to interesting conversations down the line? I'm, I'm always open. I'm, uh, my team has to pull me back from those conversations all the time. It's, I'm always open because I learn things from people I never knew I could learn things from and they're the richest experiences of my life. So yes, absolutely. And I have ideas for people who you might want to talk to yourself one-on-one and also perhaps combine with other of your guests. Well, perfect. Well, that's my final question is who do I interview next? Well, you, you know, I'm not sure who, who all you have interviewed. And if you're interested in sort of New York stories of change, I mean, you know, like who, who are the people who like stick their shoulders behind a horrible boulder and push it way up that that mountain and do it with a smile on their face. I didn't always do it with a smile on my face, <laughs> you know, but, but there's some really smart people. And one person I've met through the Equitable Commute Project, many of the people I work with, I, I love all serendipitous. We meet every single Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. And we've been doing it now for three years. But one man is, his name is Paul Lipson, uh, L-I-P-S-O-N. And he uh, was one of the founders of The Point. Uh, which is a kind of a nonprofit economic development organization based in the Bronx. And Paul now runs his own consulting firm, but, but he also was Congressman Jose Serrano's chief of staff. He, he is a very impressive, interesting, well-spoken, thoughtful person and knows a lot about a lot of, about bringing change to New York. And then the person who was my co-founder, Melinda Hansen is lovely, had a baby just about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. She has great energy. She's the micromobility master, wonderful expert of all things. And uh, I think a really fun conversationalist too. She draws people to her. She could be a lot of fun to talk to her. Omar Freya, who works with us on the, um, the Rikers Project, the far, Rikers Commercial Farm Project, and now with Canna Bronx and creating a accelerator incubator on the island. Omar is a expert on uh, worker cooperatives, and he's helped create a number of worker cooperatives 
in New York City, and he's very smart and savvy about how to create coalitions, how to get people to listen to each other when they come with suspicions, and I don't know. Well, they're they're all really interesting. I mean, what my ultimate aim for this is is to build a database of these difference makers, change makers, and domain experts. People are where you can go in and say, I want to know everyone that's doing really interesting stuff in micromobility. So it could be, whether it be in Texas or it could be in New York or it could be in London, and then start to see the impact they're having and be able to go into that database and connect with them. Because I don't think we've got the tools to do that. We've got GitHub for code where we can go and find code if you're building some sort of application or website. But you, you've got things like LinkedIn. That's just, it's okay, fine. You can, you can look someone up, but you really want to be able to go into a specific area. And that's why I'm I'm focusing at the moment these conversations on sustainable cities, stroke mobility and transportation, criminal justice reform, mental health, and education system reform because they're they're four distinct areas. Mm-hmm. And then you can start. I can then start to through people recommending people. You can start to build up a network and then say, well, who should be in this database? So it's going to take a while to do it, but I think that would be. I'd like to think that there would be some value in that because. You know, if I, you know, if I, when you mention about Omar and go, oh, that's really interesting, you know, creating worker cooperatives. Well, we're going to need more of those Mm -hmm. in the future. Particularly, you know, we haven't, we talked about AI, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people are running around like headless chickens at the moment because they're worried about the impact it's going to have. And it will have an impact, but it creates opportunity. So we need a people with imagination coming together, say, okay, what can we do to embrace these amazing new tools? And then create new structures, new organizational cooperatives that are not to typical hierarchical organizations that create more equity for people and bring more people into the workforce that might not have gone through traditional education and create new pathways for opportunity. So th- we're at a point of a, of great reimagination for society. And I think we need to have more conversations and connect people together who wouldn't otherwise collide with each other to then spark new ideas. Um, I agree. I think that's a good idea. And you can call it change makers. Uh, yeah, I haven't got a name. I'm calling it, I'm calling it an action engine at the moment, but it might engine, need yeah. a better name. Somebody can have, you know, somebody with expertise in branding. <laughs> I'm supposed to have that after 29 years in advertising. Oh, okay. All right. All I just right. need to put my mind. I just, I just need to put my mind to it a bit more. Yeah. It's my working title. No, anyway, I, I think but, it's a good well, idea. Well, well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I'm happy to share lots of other names of people in the area of sustainability. You know, I would encourage you the, the, to talk to people also in government. A lot of times they're really smart people that don't get recognized and could, could be just an interesting contrast. People who say, I'm going to try to make change. The people who, who have yeah. really committed their lives and careers to, to key sustainability goals and can, uh, who may have retired actually recently or something, but can reflect on why government can be a place as much as people deride it from bureaucracy and it's fair to do it. But that I, I don't know. Sometimes I think there are these unsung heroes that we should sing more about. Well, no, I do, uh, totally appreciate and your, uh, echoed the, the fact that you said, you know, you look at this, if you really want to affect the change, you need to look to the 
where there is power uh, within the, not just the politicians, but you say elected officials. And we know that some of the great innovations have happened, have come as a result of, from political will. And I know that a lot of the, the great innovations in the US have come because of the decisions and investments coming from central government. So I'm sure that, although I, I believe in the power of bottom up and, and the will of people, but there needs to be still echoed with the support and the impetus uh, created and maybe sometimes the funding from, from government. There was a great Philadelphia mayor about 10 years ago. I'm, I'm going to blank on his name, but he, he was a pioneer in, uh, green infrastructure. Philadelphia leapt ahead. I, I took the commissioner of DEP in New York down to see what Philadelphia was doing to hold it up, uh, and say, look, look, Philly's doing this. And it's like a city of 700,000. But I had him at a panel at, uh, that was sponsored by the Rockefeller brothers at one point. I'll, I'll think of it, but finding people who, who really knock your socks off anyway. For sure. Well, I'm open to it. For yeah. Me. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. Well, good. It's fun to talk to you, Mark. And thanks good. a lot. And Thank I you. wish you well in this project. It's very ambitious, but I think it's a smart thing to do. Okay. That's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time.